Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. God, because your word is a living word, by it, the Holy Spirit speaks to us. He puts his finger on our life and points us towards Jesus, always exalting Jesus and always calling us closer to Jesus. And this morning, Lord, as we're here, an Old Testament passage, an interesting one, Lord, we just pray that we would be pointed to Jesus. Holy Spirit, we invite you, put your finger on our heart on our lives. If there's stuff you need to deal with, Lord, we're open to it. We want, we want you to. Lord, if there's areas we need encouragement, we invite you to. We want it, Lord. We want to experience your presence and your spirit speaking to us. And so, God, we just ask your blessing on this time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, First Samuel 31, last chapter, last chapter. We're going to keep going. This is the plan. Okay, we're going to go right into Second Samuel. We just can't stop here. These stories are too awesome. So, but, you know, as we come here to this final chapter, what we've seen is this, 1 Samuel 27 to 31, it's one narrative. It's one, one story that recounts the battle that's going to end right now. We're about to read it with Saul's death, actually. And for a number of weeks, we've been bouncing back and forth. What the author does is tell us a little bit about what's going on with Saul, then go to the other side, tell us a little bit about what's going on with David. And we've gone back and forth from chapter 27 to... 31 to see what was happening during this time. And most recently, last week, we were in 29 and 30. We, we looked at David when David was rejected from joining the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, in this battle, that, this account that we're about to read. And they sent him home. He returned to his home in Ziklag, just to remind you. And remember, when he got there... Um, his wives and the wives of his men and... His children had been kidnapped in an Amalekite raid. And so at the end of chapter 30, where we've left off, the, the Lord uh, helped David, directed David, along with 400 valiant men. He was able to successfully rescue every single one without a person being lost, without a soul being lost. And it's a beautiful account because what we saw is this, is that in it is, is a bit of a revival, I would say, for David. You know, his heart returning back to the Lord in, in a certain sense after 18 months of living amongst the Philistines, kind of life on the bench. That's what we called it last week. And so the Lord used this situation to awaken David's desire to serve him and to follow him and to prepare him for this, that David is about to ascend the throne. He doesn't know. He actually doesn't know that all the years of running from Saul is about to be over in quick, in, in really quickly here. He's going to become the king of the tribe of Judah in just a matter of days. Eventually, Israel is going to come. The entire nation is going to come under his leadership. And so chapter 31 takes us, in the meantime, back to the story of Saul, who has gathered his troops against the Philistine army. So let me remind you what's happened with Saul as we come to this chapter. Uh, the Philistines have pulled out all stops to reestablish their, themselves as the superpower of the area, to reassert their authority in the region. They had massed, amassed an army deep into the promised land, deep into the territory of Israel, deep into their inheritance. And the battle was to reassert themselves as the authority in the region. Now, in response, Saul had pulled together his army, and when he saw the Philistine troops amassed and how 
big this army was and all their weapons and everything they had. The scripture just tells us uh, that he trembled with such fear that his heart was quaking inside of him. Isn't that crazy? That amount of fear gripping this guy. And so after years of blowing the Lord off, ignoring the Lord, pursuing a life of disobedience, Saul did this. He tried to get counsel from the Lord, direction from the Lord. But the Lord didn't answer him. And so Saul went so far as to get direction, to consult, to seek out a medium, the witch of Endor, to summon the prophet Samuel. And the result was this, that Saul got no word of revelation. He got received the word of judgment. Judgment from the Lord against his kingship was reiterated. It was reinforced. And Saul was told that he and his sons were going to die in this battle that we're about to read. So this chapter recounts the death of Saul. It's a, it's a short chapter, so I don't think it's going to take us any longer than an hour and a half or so to work through. Uh, Saul and his kingship had begun with such promise. Saul was, we know this, a physical specimen of a man. He was good looking, the first king of Israel. But Saul, we have seen over and over and over and over again, was a man of the flesh. Fleshly appetites, fleshly desires in his life were greater than his desire for the things of the Spirit. They were greater than his desire to obediently follow the Lord. Now let's check it out. Verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines, and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So the battle ensues, and Israel and the Philistines go at it, and the Philistines prove to be way too much for Israel to handle, and the army of Israel just begins to flee before the enemy. The enemy, of course, is well armed with chariots, and they overtake Saul and his sons, and three of his four sons are killed. Somehow, text doesn't tell us, Ishbosheth, the youngest, survives. I don't know if he was not there. I don't know if he was present and he just managed to escape. The younger brother, a little more flight of foot than the other ones. Whatever it was, the text doesn't tell us. But Ishbosheth uh, survived. Maybe he was at home. And Ishbosheth is going to assume his father's kingdom for a time. With he's going to rule over eleven tribes minus Judah for about seven years. So whatever the story is, he's not killed. But we find out this that the other brothers are the, the three of four sons. And notably, who's the one we notice in there? Jonathan, yeah. Jonathan. Jonathan uh, was a godly, valiant man. We know that Jonathan loved David. He knew this, that he knew that when his father's reign came to an end, that he, as the oldest, was not going to sit on the throne of his father Saul but that David would be king of Israel. And Jonathan had gone so far to support David as to enter into covenant with him and to promise to serve David when he came to 
the throne. He said, in fact, I'll serve as like a vice regent under you and we'll, we'll love and serve God and serve the people of God. And so Jonathan was a valiant man, a, a, a warrior, but it seems for whatever reason, this wasn't in the plan of the Lord. The Lord wanted to remove the family line of Saul completely from its claim to the throne of Israel. And so along with his brothers, Jonathan falls in this battle. As for Saul, we read this, that in his flight, uh, the archers got within range of him and they got him, they tagged him. And he was severely wounded. Verse four. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he greatly feared. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. So here's Saul, wounded by the archers. He knows that uh, he's not getting away. These are serious enough wounds. He's not going to escape the enemy. And obviously, a king captured by the enemy in those days was not going to fare well in terms of how they would treat him. Whatever torture he was likely to go through, um, was worse than the alternative. So he said to his armor bearer, finish me. Uh, rather than me fall into the hands of these uncircumcised, right? Which is to say these men who don't fear God, who don't serve the living God, the God of Israel. And the armor bearer, the text just tells us, wouldn't do it. He was afraid. Uh, which naturally, I mean, his job is to protect the king not to take his life. He's sworn to protect, not to kill. So Saul does this. He takes his own life. He falls on his sword. Verse five. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men on the same day together. So this is just, man, I don't know. What do you say? This is a devastating story, isn't it? It's just so tragic to hear this happen to this whole family. Not only does their father die, the king, but all but one of the royal sons die. This is just a devastating defeat for the people of Israel and for the household of Saul. Now, verse 7. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. So this is the extent of this defeat here. Just to get a picture to say, how bad is this defeat? Is it just so bad that just Saul is gone? No, the whole, most of the royal family is wiped out. And the defeat is so great that resident Israelites in the valley, in the valley of Jezreel, in the Jordan Valley, across the Jordan River to the other side, they fled their communities they fled their homes, they left their possessions behind, and they booked it. Now, the Valley of Jezreel, we're going to see a map here in a few minutes. I'll bring the map up. In a, in a few, actually, you can chuck it up there. Let's check it up there. Can we do that? I'm kind of jumping ahead, but there's, there's the map. And the Valley of Jezreel is out this way, and the Jordan Valley is right here. They, they meet perpendicularly, like a T-shape. And it was a significant region, lots of communities around there, as you can see, uh, lots of people, and they just fled their homes. And it's crazy, the Philistines just moved into empty cities, into empty homes, into, yeah, just 
pretty sweet deal for the Philistines, which is a devastating reversal. Think about this. It's a devastating reversal of the promises of God for the children of Israel. When they came into the promised land, the Lord promised them that the, that the place, every place where the sole of their foot treaded would be theirs. That in fact, all of the land was theirs and all they had to do to take hold of it was to set their soul in that place and it was theirs. It was just enter into promise and it's yours. And the Lord promised them this. You're going to move into houses you did not build, into cities you did not build, surrounded with walls you did not build. You're going to reap the benefits of trees and crops that you did not plant. I am going to bless you. After 400 years of slavery in Egypt, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, living in tents, a home and communities and protection and the blessing of shelter and provision from the Lord was his blessing. And the Lord said to them, he said this, you're to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. But here in this text, we have the full reversal of this. The enemy's driving them out. The enemy's taking hold of their homes, moved into their houses. Now verse eight, we read this. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. It's crazy. It makes me think as I read this, taking off Saul's head of David and Goliath. To just go back to that story where David cut off Goliath's head after taking him out with a stone and a sling. Saul had offered David this, you know, take my weapons, take my armor, go and fight the giant, prepare to fight him. And David had done this. He had tried on the armor of Saul, but it was too big. He couldn't move in it. So instead, he went and faced the giant with a stone and with some stones and a, and a sling and now the armor, think about this, the armor that David rejected is now in the hands of the Philistines. And Saul loses his head, which is kind of unfortunate. I've lost a lot of things in my life. It's not good when you lose your head. <laughs> so the Philistines do this. They send messengers of this good news. It's interesting. This gospel, this gospel good news, Philistine good news that they have taken Saul's armor, they have taken his head, and they bring it to the house of their idol gods. The book of First Chronicles, which also documents, tells us this, that his, I think it's his head went to the idol house of Ashtaroth and his armor went to the house of Dagon. And the Philistines said, look at this proof that our gods are greater than the God of Israel. Now verse 10, oh yeah, here it is in here too. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall of Bashan. It was his head that went to the temple of Dagon. Bashan is a city that's closest to Mount Gilboa where David died. In, or, sorry, where Saul died, was killed. And the Israelites had fled. So the Philistines just move into this city, this community of Bashan. 
And they took Saul's body and they took the body of his sons. And we read this, they fastened their bodies to the wall. It's like victory is just taunting the Israelites, taunting anyone who would go past there. Beshan is that, can we check up that map again? Beshan is at the junction between the Valley of Jezreel and the Jordan Valley, right there at that junction. Jezreel goes this way, Jordan Valley up and down this way. Um, the Valley of Jezreel, of course, uh, is the place where the Battle of Armageddon is going to happen. Where when the kings of the earth gather against the Lord and his anointed, he's going to strike them down in the end of days with, his, with the breath of his mouth. So Saul's body is hung on the walls of this city. So I want to I just keep reading on here. Actually, you know, we went to Bethshan, I think it was uh, 2018, didn't we? Was that 2018 we did that trip? Man, time is flying by. Bethshan is awesome, man. If we, ever get the, if we ever get the chance to go back to Israel, you gotta come. And Bethshan is like on the list. The very first time I went to Israel, Brenda was on that trip. Uh, Suzanne was on that trip. We went to the city of Bethshan. And it is an amazing archaeological site. And it's like so cool to wander around there. It's just like huge. You're like, I could spend all day here. And we didn't have that much time. But it's, it's super cool. And it's amazing to read this story and to be present in this place where this happened. So I just have the picture of Bashan in my, in my mind. And actually, we went on the first trip to Israel. We went there. And then we did three trips, didn't go to Bashan. And all along, I was saying as we're planning, I'm like, Guys, we need to get Bashan back on our agenda. So we did it on the last trip. It's awesome. Okay, this is where they are. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants... See, I told you this is going to take like two hours to get through this chapter. Verse 11. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. You should underline that. All the valiant men arose and they went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bashan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there and they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and they fasted seven days. So let's, let's check that map back up. Get our geographic bearing here, okay? Transjordan Valley right here, Sea of Galilee. The reason why that's gray is because it's below sea level. It's kind of interesting just to note that. Because the Sea of Galilee empties into the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea is 1,300 feet below sea level. Think about that for a moment. 1,300 feet. Like, how deep is it out there? Might hit 400 out here, kind of towards Plumper's Cove, maybe. Three-something? 1,300 feet down is the Dead Sea. And so the gray on there illustrates that. And so even, the, even this community of Bashan, check that out, it's below sea level. It's a super significant valley. It holds lots of prophecies around it for what's going to happen in the future. Now, the city of Jabesh Gilead was on the other side of the valley, up in the foothills there, about uh, probably 20K, almost 20K as the crow flies. And um, the significance is this. The reason why I wanted to chuck a map up is this, is that all these communities are empty. Think about it. Everybody's fled. Philistines have moved in. They're all empty communities. 
But the men of Jabesh Gilead over on the other side of the river there, even though all the other communities had emptied out, arose. They traveled all night where they recovered the headless body of the king and his sons and they brought them back that nearly 20K and burned their bodies and buried them under a tamarisk tree. Jabesh Gilead, that city, owed its life to Saul. It's actually really interesting to think about this story, to to look at the threat of Jabesh Gilead throughout scripture. See, back in the time of the judges, can we chuck that map back up there? What's going on back there? (laughs) Back in the time of the judges, there is an account about this city, Jabesh Gilead, that's really significant to the book of Judges. Um, at the end of the book of Judges, yeah, there's this, this violent assault that happens that leads to a civil war amongst all the tribes of Israel. Um, and the assault, the assault had been done against a woman by the tribe of Benjamin, And so you remember, it's a really gory Bible story, one of the most gory ones. This man took his concubine, he cut her into pieces, and he sent the pieces to the tribes of Israel and said, look at what these men have done. What are we going to do? And so the army of Israel gathered uh, to go to war against the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Benjamin was nearly wiped off the map. In fact, the scripture says that only 600 young men from the tribe of Benjamin survived. And when the whole battle was over, the other 11 tribes of Israel said, this is awful. One of our own tribes has basically been wiped out. And so the tribes of Israel all gathered to mourn before the Lord over the civil war. And when they gathered, they discovered this, that there was not one resident of Jabez Gilead present Not one resident from Jabesh Gilead had participated in the civil war nor gathered to mourn before the Lord over what had happened. None of their men showed up. None of their men showed up for battle. Imagine this, like Israel had a civil war, 11 tribes against one, and the men of Jabesh Gilead could not be bothered to participate in a serious matter of justice. And in the book of Judges, when it was discovered that the tribes of Israel uh, could not count the men of Jabesh Gilead among them, they gathered their army again and they sent them against this city right there. And they wiped it out. All the men, women, children, in fact, the Bible tells us that only 400 virgin women were saved from that city right there. It's awful. Every other person died in that battle. This community, this was a community that had a stain on its past. And the men were nowhere to be found when there was a civil war, when this matter of justice had erupted in Israel. So it was a black mark on the history of Israel and on this city. Now let's jump forward into the book of Samuel. Because years later, Between the time that Saul had been anointed by Samuel and had yet to rise to power, the Ammonite king came against this same city, Jabesh Gilead. 
And he said, you're going to enter into covenant with me and you're going to serve me. And if you don't, I'm going to come into your city. Well, when you enter into covenant with me, I'm going to gouge out every one of your right eyes. And if you don't enter into covenant with me, I'm going to kill you all. And so the elders of Jabesh-Gilead sent a message to Israel. And when Saul was told this news, the Bible tells us, 1 Samuel chapter 11, that the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. And uh, the dread of God fell upon the tribes of Israel. And Saul assembled an army. And Saul came and he rescued that city. It's, it's cool because in the scripture, the Lord's always closing the loops of the stories. Always working for redemption, just like he is in your life. In many ways, this is the high point of Saul's entire life and career, of his kingship. When he led this battle, the entire nation rallied around him and they said, Saul is our king, we will follow him. Rallying point for the nation and the new king of Israel and the city of Jabesh-Gilead did not forget what Saul had done for him. Isn't that cool? All those years before, they hadn't sent one single man out for war, one single valiant man, but Saul had been a redeemer king for them. Because of him, they all had their right eyeballs still. Um, their eyeballs were intact. And now when the residents of every other city, every other city now, Listen, this reversal. Every other city's emptied. Nobody else is responding. And this time, the men of Jabesh Gilead, the valiant men, said, We have to rise to the occasion. We have to rescue the mutilated body of our king. He saved us, and we have to honor him no matter what. Because valiant men defend the honor of their king. <laughs> Think about that. Valiant men and women defend the honor of their king. Amen? Our king is Jesus. How much more us? How much more us? See, Christ has rescued us, hasn't he, church? He has rescued us from death. Jesus has opened our eyes to the reality of his salvation and his valiant men and women we defend our king. We defend our king in his death. Well, you want to argue about theology of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus? It is not up for sale in this church. We defend the sacrificial atonement of King Jesus. We defend that Jesus bore our sins on that cross and was buried and risen from the dead. We defend the fact that Jesus has saved us. We defend the name of our king. Now, when I think of Saul, you know, Saul was a fleshly king. And that's why Saul has to be removed from the story of the history of Israel. The flesh has to be removed so that God's king can rule. And the same has to happen in you and in me. The flesh has to be removed so that King Jesus can rule. And here's the application for us. Church, the flesh has to die. The flesh cannot be king. It has to be put to death, and then we give our lives entirely over to the rule of Christ, King Jesus. This reminds me that we need to have 
zero tolerance for sin in our own lives. We don't need to point fingers at anybody else because there's three pointing back at each one of us every time we do that, right? We need to have zero tolerance for sin in our own lives. Paul said this, Romans 13, 14, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we make no provision for the flesh. The flesh has to be put to death. Its lusts have to be put to death. You, you cannot have peace and coexistence with the things of the spirit and the things of the flesh. The flesh has to be put to death. We say, murder the flesh. That's why Saul has to die so that David can come. God's choice of king. Paul says in Romans 6 that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin would be brought to nothing. He says we consider ourselves dead to sin but alive to Christ Jesus. Paul's using accounting terms in Romans chapter 6 when he talks about that. He says with regards to sin, sin is out of business in this life. Sin is out of business in the life following Jesus. It's no longer king. We count it as dead. We murder the flesh. We put it out of business. And I think about the story of Saul, and it's like this. Saul had to die. You know, we read this and we say, this is awful. Look at Saul had to die because the flesh is not to be king. In our lives, we don't coddle sin. We don't coddle the flesh. We don't cherish it. We don't excuse it. We don't celebrate it. In Christ Jesus, we put it to death so we can live for the things of the Spirit. Church, put it to death so that the Spirit can rule. You know, if you leave an area of sin open in your life, that sin is going to come back and bite you. You're going to hear about that in a, two weeks. We're going to go into 1 Samuel chapter 2 Samuel chapter 1. We're going to see the part of the story that reveals more about this death of Saul that's just brutal because Saul's sin came back to bite him. I'm going to, you should read ahead, okay? Read ahead. It came back to bite him. And sin will do that. If you don't put sin to death, it will come back and it will bite you. You have to put it, bring it to the cross, count it as dead so that you can live for the things of the Spirit. Remember when Joshua entered the land and he instructed the people, you know, you can move into these houses, you can enter into all of this blessing and promise that God has for you. Every place where the sole of your foot steps, I've already, the Lord has already given it to you, but you have to appropriate it. You have to go there. You have to step into it. It's yours. But not every person enters into the life of promise. Not every person enters into the spirit-filled abundant life because they're clinging and cherishing sin. Church, leave it behind. Saul was a fleshly man, a fleshly king. But what's amazing is this, that those whom he saved were still willing to risk their lives in his honor, the men of Jabesh Gilead. And our king has died for us, laid down his life for us. We defend the honor of his name, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved, the name of Jesus. Christ Jesus rescued us for this reason, so that we could enter into the spirit-filled, abundant, 
life and that we could live valiantly for him. I like that word valiant in scripture. Speaks of being fearless, brave, courageous, stout-hearted. That's a good one for valiant, to be a stout-hearted man or woman for their king. And we serve the king of kings, the only wise king. Holy is his name. And so church, let us live valiant lives for King Jesus. Amen. For the glory of his name. And so this morning, we're going to do this. We're going to come to the table and we get to do this. We get to remember this, that our king died for us. And valiant men and women stand up for their king. Valiant men and women remember the death of their savior and they proclaim it until he comes. And so the table of the Lord, again, is just like just this awesome expression of our trust in the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus. And this morning as we come, you know what the scripture instructs us is this, is that when we come to the table of the Lord, we always have to do a self-check, an internal check. We need to search our own hearts. And the word of God warns us that if we come to the table of the Lord without considering what Jesus has done for us, we eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. And so the, the, the table of the Lord requires this. It requires this, that we look inside, that we look to the cross, and that we put to death sin. We say, Jesus, I'm bringing it to you again. Wash me in your blood. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your Redemption, thank you for purchasing me and freeing me and clothing me in your righteousness. Lord, I confess the sin. I bring it to you. Bring forth the abundant work of your spirit in my heart and in my life that I would live for your glory and for your name. This is what we do when we come to the table of the Lord. We remember the Lord's death until he comes. And so I'm going to invite the worship team to come this morning.